Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard. I'm director of ECFR. And this week we will be talking about Hungary. Here to discuss it with me is Balash Orban. Balash has been serving as Prime Minister Viktor Orban's political director since 2021, although he, he shares a name with him. He's not actually related to the Prime Minister of Hungary. He's also chairman of the board of the Matthias Corvinus Collegium. And before that, he was Minister of State in the Prime Minister's office, Director General of the Migration Research Institute in Budapest. And in 2021, he wrote a book called The Hungarian Way of Strategy, which attempts to provide readers with an understanding of Hungarian strategic thinking. Balash, thank you very much for joining. Thank you very much. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. So I thought it would be very interesting for us to have a conversation because Hungary has been a, an outlier in a lot of the European debates in recent times, particularly since the war in Ukraine started. But uh, over the last few years, Hungary has often been one of the, the key shapers of European decision making, not least during the, the migration crisis on, on other issues. And what I realized reading your book and talking to you is that you and the government that you represent have got quite a different way of thinking about where the world is going from where many European countries are at and where a lot of the public discourse is in, in European capitals at, at this moment. And that it would be interesting to unpack that and to give people a chance to understand it. Maybe we can start with a very big picture. We're seeing a lot of changes taking place in the international order including the rise of China, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and it also increasingly active middle powers, whether it's uh, Turkey or Saudi Arabia, Iran and other players playing a different role on, on, on the world stage. You've uh, just written a, an interesting commentary for our website, kind of thinking, explaining how you see it. But maybe you could talk about how you would characterize the, the current international order. Yes, thank you very much, Mark. Once again, it's um, wonderful to be here. Not very easy times. Actually, I'm very happy to to realize that Hungary's position is always interesting, although we are small politically, economically, military-wise, not very important country, but still somehow we were be able to influence at least European thinking since the migration crisis. So I don't think that it started in connection with the war, but it started way before. Uh, my personal experience, I, I used to live also back at the time here in Budapest. So in 2015, that was my first experience with that when I realized that, oh, what is going on here? It's on the worst, worst stage. So we should be more active in communication, not only in the domestic field, but in the international field as well. The word order, most complicated uh, question, but uh, I like to use the, the phrasing of, uh, of Henry Kissinger, a word order without an order. So this is something what we are seeing, changing uh, geopolitical and economic um, structures. There is a very interesting debate in Hungary, which is going on right now, whether what is happening is that the rising, if you separate the word to the West and the rest, then you experience the rise of the rest economically. And the, there is a very interesting discussion about that in Hungary, whether it's an exceptional period of time or just a normal equilibrium of uh, power. I mean, like 
Neil Ferguson, for example, he's talking about that there was an exceptional period of time when, when the West could dominate for like a couple of centuries the rest. And what is going on right now is the economic center of the world is moving toward, toward the East. And it's kind of a new equilibrium, what we are realizing. I think everybody sees it in, in quite a similar way. What is different is the answers. So the, the questions are very similar. The, the observation, it's also very similar. Where, where there is a big differentiation is how we react on these changes and on this situation. And that's where Hungary's uh, special co- position comes into our mind. So in the article, you've written about how we're moving from a sort of globalized world where there was an attempt to try and have one system into a world which is divided into different blocks with the US talking a lot about decoupling and increasingly splitting the world into democracies and, and autocracies. And you argue very powerfully that this is not good news for Hungary. Yes, indeed. This is the situation. So what we realize, and it's very obvious since the war started, where obviously we have to condemn Russia and Russian aggression, but we have to also uh, realize that this is just a, some special effect of a bigger change. And since the war started, it's very obvious that the American-led West is trying to have a strategy which is about bringing the, back the Cold War logic, bringing together the Western powers, unite them in a more powerful way than after the post-Cold War period, re-establish some kind of uh, a new block or Cold War logic. And uh, and that would be the answer against the challenges which are posing by the rest of the world. I'm not, not just talking about China and Russia, but, but the emerging new powers as well. And what I'm arguing for is, in general, I think it's not a good news for Europe because in the last 30 years, Europeans were very much committed that if they want to be independent and they want to be strategically autonomous, if I may use this kind of French word and the concept behind it, which means independence from East, so from Russia and China, and some kind of independence from the West or from the United States of America, these new issues and uh, initiatives are undermining this European concept. And it is definitely not good for Hungary either, because of some special Hungarian historical, geographical, social, cultural, political consequences. Hungary's interest is always, and especially in in this uh, uh, world order, peaceful cooperation between the blocs, deeper and deeper economic cooperation, and the original concept of uh, globalization. And the world goes into a very different direction right now. That's why we are a bit worried and we want to influence the international debates on this issue. So it's kind of interesting because, as you say, in 2015, most people saw Hungary emerge as the, the one of the main critiques of globalism, talking about reclaiming sovereignty, pushing back on the free movement of people. But in your article, you have become a kind of siren voice in favor of globalism against decoupling and against the the kind of breaking up of the international order. Can you explain why? Yes. And, you know, the same thing happening uh, with some other experts as well, like you, because as I following your wonderful writings from the 90s and from the beginning of 2000s, 
then you became a vocal supporter of the idea of globalization. Meanwhile, in current situation, you're more likely to talk about the threats and the dangers and the possible conflict-based approaches of globalization. So things are changing and we are changing as well. But I think there is something which can bring together these uh, different positions because I really like to use the word connectivity as a Hungarian globalization strategy, which was used this kind of word in the 90s by the liberals, but currently many liberals are not using this word anymore. But I think connectivity is not only understandable in the context of the West and the rest, but inside the West as well, how the Western countries are connected. And that's where our migration policy, family policy, sovereignty-based policy comes uh, in, because we think that connectivity among the Western powers, it's about Christianity. So it's about the Christian civilization, the Judeo-Christian civilization. So, and the origins of these kind of civilizational backgrounds should be preserved. And that's the reason why you can be anti-mass migration, anti-illegal migration, because it destroys connectivity, Christian-based culture between the Western countries. Meanwhile, from an economic or geopolitical perspective, you can be on the side of uh, increased and more deepening idea of, of connectivity. So you're in favor of the globalization of, of capital, but uh, but not of people. It's more, yeah, that. indeed. It's more like an economic term and uh, and culture and uh, social, uh, stable social background is also important. So we'll talk about the, those issues as well, because they're also very controversial. But just to, to understand a bit more clearly what you're saying on this first position, which is about the international order and, and globalization. One of the big lessons that many European countries have taken from the situation with Russia is the need to reduce dependence on countries which don't share strategic interests and values with them. It's one of the, the reasons why there's been a, a complete decoupling launched on Russian oil and gas. It's not finished yet, but there's been a dramatic fall in the amount of exposure that people have towards Russia in that front. And many people in other countries are saying, now we need to learn the same lessons about China and their new debates launched by the European Commission about dependence on China for critical raw materials. Germany has been having a long debate about its 5G network, and people were quite surprised that instead of just stopping it, they've decided to rip out and replace all of the Huawei contributions to Germans, Germany's 5G network. But you are very uh, opposed to that. And in your piece, you argue that one of the tricks which Hungary has been pursuing in order to escape the middle income trap and to become an advanced developed economy is to build up these economic links with lots of different people. The Hungary can be the place where where German car manufacturers and Chinese battery makers can, can meet in a single geography. Can you talk a bit more about that? I share some of the points uh, which, uh, which you mentioned, like total dependence on energy, for example. It's obviously not good. It's obviously a problem. What we see right now, especially after the war, that the percentage of uh, Russian energy import toward Europe went down. So the percentage is uh, it's much more lower than before. But the reality is that we don't, we Europeans, we don't have our own energy resources. So we need import. 
So the depend the level of European dependency is the same. It's just not toward Russia, but toward some other countries. So if you talk about, and that's where we have to separate things from each other. If you talk about increasing the level of European independence, and obviously inside Europe, Hungarian independence in energy and in all fields, it is one of our most important priority. But changing dependency from another dependency, it's not very logical according to our understanding. The other part is where where we are talking about decoupling right now with Russia, but later on more and more people are talking about decoupling from China. According to our understanding, this is not the interest of um, of Europe. So I think that Chinese uh, markets are opportunities for European companies. And it is actually the decision of, of the German economic power that they want to merge German technology with, uh, with Chinese technology, not, not only with Chinese technology, but uh, with Eastern technology as well. And that's how they want to keep up peaceful economic-based cooperation of Europe and Asia. And according to our understanding, this, this is a wise, this is a reasonable strategy, which it is in line with the interest of European economy. But what is going on right now, where we are going, is just uh, the other way around. And it is not good. Probably we, we can say that this is the American way of thinking, or this is the American approach, but we Europeans should be more united and more outspoken and more brave to represent our interests, not only against the Eastern powers, which are from a political point of view definitely different from us, but against the Western powers like our friends, the United States of America as well. So a lot of people think that as Europe's dependence on America in the face of Russian aggression grows, the demands for Europeans to align on decoupling are also going to grow. We saw very recently both that German decision I talked about on 5G. We saw the Dutch deciding to um, restrict access to ASML, their big uh, semiconductor uh, making factory for for China. Do you think that it it is actually viable to, to find a kind of sweet spot somewhere halfway between China and America if we move into a world that's increasingly polarized? Well, actually, uh, I, I see very similar signs, what you were mentioning, but I don't know the outcome of this debate. This is an ongoing European debate where there are some other uh, European countries which are sharing the Hungarian position. And obviously there are some European powers who are more uh, on the American side in connection with that. But this is an open discussion and this is an open debate. And until the moment where the decision is made and it's legally binding, everybody has the right to bring up some alternative. And uh, there will be elections in Europe on the European parliamentary level. There will be election in uh, 2024 in the United States of America. So who knows, probably in two or three years time, this this status quo on this trend will go to the other way. So until this moment, I think Hungary has the right to, to raise its uh, concerns and be active part of this kind of cooperation. If I'm not talking about the Hungarian position, but talking about in, in general, I think the idea that although demographically, and economically, the power is shifting towards the East, 
but United States of America wants to preserve the world order as it was without any significant change. Since the end of the Cold War, it's impossible. It's it's bringing more conflict and more wars and more economic uh, tensions than it than than solutions. So we need all of us at, on the Western side another strategy. Some American experts and some American politicians are also sharing this concern of mine, but the discussion is still going on and I think it will be open until 2024. So what sorts of concessions do you think the West should make then in the light of this power shift? I think we have timing problem. So what we were thinking after the the Cold War, when everybody was talking about the end of uh, end of history and the spread of the idea of liberal democracy and neoliberal world order, it wasn't a bad strategy, but it was a bad timing in a sense that uh, culture and economic prosperity and the emerging middle class is important for all the countries. So they will not forget these kind of ideas. They want to go to that direction. Uh, Chinese middle class is important for Chinese government. Indian middle class is important for Indian government. They don't want to import our way of political thinking. They, they want to create a structure which is economically beneficial for them. Meanwhile, they are preserving and strengthening their own systems and their own way of thinking. This was the misunderstanding of the West after the, the, the end of the Cold War. But the original concept is that although this power shift is happening, but through our cultural soft power, our political soft power, our economic advantage, we are able to preserve peace and bring economic prosperity for all the participants. It wasn't a bad idea at all. So we have to go back this kind of original way of thinking. And currently, this is exactly the time when we can use this way of thinking. But in reality, what is going on is what you mentioned, that we're going to another direction. We think that, oh, this strategy wasn't working. We wanted to stabilize and bring these countries to our side, but it didn't happen. It beca- They became more powerful, but they became more post- hostile towards us. So right now we have to get rid of them and turn towards confrontation. This is not a good way of thinking. We have to go back the original idea and follow. Just to understand a bit, to be a bit more explicit, because you were talking in slightly abstract terms about how, you know, there's a lot being played for in different elections, particularly in the US. There's some people who agree with you. I mean, you mean presumably what Donald Trump or Ron DeSantis or people like that, the Republican people, that you think that they might be more sympathetic to the way that you're looking at the world? Uh, no, I'm not saying that. They, are, You know, we are Hungarians, so we are a small mouse in the room. Meanwhile, the Americans are the big elephant. So I'm not saying as a small mouse that I cannot have an influence of the big mouses. What I'm saying is that some of the Republicans are seeing that this current conflict and the current way of decoupling, it's not good. It's not the interest of the United States. Some of them are saying that instead we should do the same. We should do this with Russia. We should more focus on China. But some of them are saying that uh, a potential third world war it's not the interest of United States either. So we should find another approach, like the Trump foreign policy was uh, 
was very different from the current foreign, foreign policy. He was more focusing on the bilateral dimensions of, of foreign policy, which is, according to my understanding, it was more um, efficient because it created peace on the Middle East. It could stabilize European and Russian Western connections. It could stabilize the relationship between North Korea and the rest of the world. So according to my understanding, there was a different approach between 2016 and 2020, and it was much better for the world. So I think that after 2024, if there is a Republican leadership, probably in connection with China, they will, and, and probably in connection with Russia, they will have issues on the table also, but their way of thinking will be obviously different. This is what should be put in the calculation by the Europeans as well. So you think the big difference is that they might have a bad relationship with China or with Russia, but they'll do it on their own rather than trying to build on the Western alliance and to demand as much of, of the Europeans in that confrontation. Can we talk a bit about the war in Ukraine? Because that's obviously a massive issue at the moment and is an issue which, as we sort of said at the beginning, has put Hungary in a slightly different place from from some of its best allies within the European Union. Hungary and Poland often got spoken of in in a single sentence. But when it comes to your respective views on the war in Ukraine, you have quite different ways of, of framing it. And you've been very vocal about the need for an immediate ceasefire in, in Ukraine. Can you talk a bit more about that? Yes. So from the very first moment of the war, the Hungarian position is uh, very clear. As I said, we condemn the Russian uh, aggression and we are, we do support Ukraine in the field of humanitarian aid and some other aspects as well. But um, according to our understanding, this is the war where there will be no uh, winner, only losers. And, uh, and, and Europe will be definitely among the losers as well. Uh, so we'll be on the losing side. So this is the reason why we think that many people died, country collapsed, uh, Russia is, is still a, a threat, is still proceeding, it has more territory than before the war uh, started. So instead of es- escalation and putting more oil on the fire, we should rather focus on uh, ceasefire and then peace talks, which will not be easy. Americans should also be involved in these peace talks. And in the long term, we should find a strategic agreement on European, Russian, American security umbrella. Because, because if we are not going to that direction... Then, then this conflict will remain with us for like decades and it will make prospect of Europe even, even harder. So this is the Hungarian position. The Polish position is different. Uh, if I was Polish and arguing with you, I'd probably say that what you're talking about is very dangerous. You, a ceasefire would, would allow Putin to consolidate his territorial gains. It would encourage him to pursue further aggression because he wasn't paying a price for initial annexation of large swathes of Ukrainian territory and would just give him time to to rebuild his army before preparing the next wave of uh, of attack and so what would you say to that yeah this is why this is why I'm saying that we have um, a debate with our Polish friends not on a strategical level but but on a tactical level because on a strategic level we are on the same side we want to have a strong and um, independent Central Europe, and we want to have also a Russia which is not posing a, a threat 
on Europe. But currently what we see is that the NATO is far more strong than Russia. So Russia would never attack any NATO country. So this is not an imminent threat. And uh, what we see is that this current level of conflict with the risk of escalation, with the risk of uh, nuclear powers involved, it's too big. So that's the reason why uh, the majority of the Europe of the world is uh, is on the side of the peace. So you can say that we are in a minority with our European position, but outside Europe, everybody, and not only the rival uh, powers of the United States, but but really everybody is on the side of uh, ceasefire and peace. So the, the word majority is behind us. In Europe, you are right that right now it seems that we are a minority, probably Hungary and the Vatican. These are the two remaining uh, countries which are not um, in the war camp. But uh, I think sooner or later, uh, Russia, Ukraine, United States and all the European countries, they will have to realize that uh, this current level of escalation is not sustainable, is not good for us. So we need to find a way to get back to the negotiation tables. It will be not easy. It will not work without the willingness of Russia, Ukraine and the United States and some other European countries as well. But in the long term, there will be no other way. So what's your vision for the ultimate end game? Some sort of partition of Ukraine on a sort of Korea, like North and South Korea? Uh, we don't know yet. This is why we should first, or they should first, uh, reach an agreement on the ceasefire and sit down to the negotiations table because I haven't seen in my life any peace deal which was very obvious from the very first moment that what will be the outcome of the peace negotiations. So, so right now I don't see the outcome, but I think if we don't re-establish the, the process, then it will be a long and, and mutually devastating war, which is, again, it's not good for the participants and not good for Europe and not good for, for Hungary. So I cannot answer to your questions because the solution is not there. So it, that's why we need the process first. And through the process, the solution will come up. But the Ukrainians are not interested in a ceasefire at the moment because 20% of their country is still under Russian control and they want to have talks when they've regained the territory that they have at the moment. So how would I you... agree with you. This is why we don't have a ceasefire and peace. But, but you're saying we need a ceasefire immediately. Do you think that the US should put pressure on the Ukrainians to negotiate? Well, I, I don't know what is going on be behind the curtains, who is influencing who. Uh, this is the job of the experts. Uh, there is only one thing I do know. If we want to save lives, because hundreds of hundreds of people are dying on a daily basis on the battlefield, if we want to save lives, then then the only way to do it is uh, through ceasefire. That's why this is the Hungarian uh, approach. One of the interesting things about your argument and the way that you look at the world is on the on the one hand, you talk about how a world of blocks is dangerous and bad and economically and security terms. On the other hand, you are part of a government that is a member of two blocs, the European Union and NATO. And part of your ability to build these relations with other players comes, I think, from the security of being in these blocs. I mean, Ukraine is obviously in a less good position to develop a relationship with Russia from a position of strength than you are, because it's it's not had the protection of 
of NATO and the European Union. What do you say to people who find there's something slightly hypocritical about being against the world in blocks whilst getting all the benefits of being inside these two blocks? I think there is no controversy on that because the new world order will be about that uh, countries will have different type of connections. So there will be some security alliance structures, there will be some political alliance structures, there will be some economic alliance structures. So right now we are, I think, on a, in our place. We are a member of NATO, we are loyal and committed member of NATO. We are a member of the European Union, which is still more an economy and some political-based cooperation, but we are also a member of V4 Cooperation. We are a member of the Turkish Council, which is a platform for cooperation for Turkish states with different origins than the European one. We are cooperating with the Asian countries, also with, with China in economic cooperations. So this is how multi-level type of cooperation and, and structure looks like in the 21st century in a global era. This is how 21st century connectivity-based country strategy looks like. So I think that more and more people will look like uh, as uh, Hungary in the future with this type of multi-level approach. Maybe we can end by by looking at the the future of the EU. Um, Hungary has been a key participant in a lot of the fights for the for the soul of the European Union in recent times. Angela Merkel and your Prime Minister, Viktor Orban, were kind of seen as two different visions of, of what European identity could look like during the, the refugee crisis. There have been all sorts of fights about uh, the rule of law, about a lot of the, the domestic uh, moves which your government has taken in, in recent years. And as we go into the European elections for 2024 next year, and people think about the future of, of Europe, how do you see... Um, the EU as a political project emerging? According to our understanding, the the success story behind the idea of Europe or, or United Europe, of uh, European Union, was always a compromise-based approach. So from the very first moment since the founding fathers started this project, two different ways of thinking. Some politicians and some, some political forces from the very first moment were saying that this is a project which should end in a completely unified Europe, in a European superstate. And from the very first moment, some political forces were saying that, no, 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 this is not the case. It should remain as a platform of the cooperation of equal uh, nation states. And the success of Europe was never about one idea or the other idea is overtaking the other way of thinking, but a kind of an equilibrium or kind of a balance between the two different approaches, like yin or yang, and these kind of examples are coming into my mind. What is going on right now is that because of some political facts or changes, those who are who were the advocates of European superstate, they want to finish this project. They are fed up with the discussions, fed up with these kind of power balance and equilibrium. They, they want to end discussion and change the European Union into a really functioning superstate where the center is dictating policies uh, for all the member states. And this is obviously not the interest of Europe. So we will always, be, uh, not the interest of Hungary. So we will. Who do you think is trying to do that in today's EU? Oh, well, actually, it's a very complicated issue. My explanation to that 
is um, since the German government and the French government uh, became uh, less powerful and the Brits left the European Union, the Brazilian elite, so not the member states, but the Brazilian bureaucrats. So from the line, you think? Yeah, uh, well, not only her. I mean, I mean, it's not about one single person. It's about a way of thinking and a group of people. Uh, who are coming from uh, different institutions. So, so those people who are, who are mainly in Brussels, they became more powerful. And right now it seems that they have more power through the institutional um, networks to put pressure on the member states to, to follow this line. And according to our view, this is not good for Hungary. So we will be always proud member of European Union as it was until today, as it is um, equal and free platform for nations to cooperate. Meanwhile, we will always opposing the idea of European, of turn this into a European super state. So, sorry, it's a lot easier to have the because if you talk about you know sort of shadowy groups of people, it makes for great conspiracy theories, but not particularly useful discussion. So it would be good to name the people because I, I frankly don't know anybody who's in a position of power who's calling for the creation of a super state. Oh, Mark, Mark, don't don't be naive, and it's not about happening on on the level of ideas it's happening on the level of everyday practice so right now if you try to understand the power structure inside the european parliament if you ask the european parliamentary members you will see at least two-thirds of the european parliamentary members who are uh, fighting for more rights for uh, european union if you compare the rights of what have the the European member states. So in the European Parliament, this way of thinking is obvious. It has at least a two-third majority. Meanwhile, the European Commission under Ursula von der Leyen and under Jean-Claude Juncker, they openly were saying that first they are a poli- they became a political commission. Then, the, uh, then Ursula von der Leyen was saying that the uh, geopolitical commission. Meanwhile, before that, Barroso, he was very open to that, that he, his job is not to uh, give a policy line to Europe. He is a top bureaucrat in a positive sense. His job is to keep together the European cooperation. But, but Juncker and Ursula von der Leyen, they have their own political agenda, which differs from the political agenda of some of the member states. And we didn't have the time to talk about the role of, of uh, European court uh, and so on and so on. So these are the institutional changes which were happening in the last 10 years. And this is changing the power dynamism inside Brussels. And it's not about conspiracy. And I'm trying to use a very neutral language to describe this. But this is a fact. What we, as a national government, we experience it on a daily level. And I think it brings Europe into a direction where is more conflict between the member states, less solidarity between the member states, the original ideas and and achievements of European integration are under pressure because of that. So this is something which should be recalculated. And I hope the power dynamism could change after 24 elections in Europe. And obviously it has a transatlantic aspect as well. Maybe last question. It'd be interesting to hear how you think that's going to happen. Because in the past, obviously, Fidesz, your party was very active part of the EPP, the European People's Party, which is the the centre-right Christian Democrat grouping within the EU. It was suspended. There's now much more fragmentation on the the right in, 
in the European Parliament with other groups emerging. But there are new parties in power, such as Giorgio Maloney's Brothers of Italy party in, in Rome. And many people kind of think that either in the run-up to the European elections or after it, you could have a reconstitution of, of, um, of these different groups. How do you see that emerging? I see the possibility of happening what you just mentioned. So the right, which means right to EPP and not counting the extremist uh, right uh, small political parties. So it's, it, right now it's fragmented. It needs to be united and then it needs to be open with the cooperation of other European political parties like the EPP and some other parties as well. And I hope that as an outcome of the election, this uh, will create a counterbalance to those who are who want to keep bring the European Union into a, a different direction. This is our hope. We will see. It should be decided by the voters, not by the leaders of the European continent. Okay. Um, thank you very much. Unfortunately, we, we've run out of time. There were lots more questions that uh, we could have gone into. I would have been keen to talk more about these civilizational questions that you were posing earlier on as well. But um, uh, we'll have to do that in another podcast, I think. There's one thing left to do on this podcast, and that's our bookshelf segment. Are there any, obviously, I've mentioned your book already, The Hungarian Way of Strategy, but are there any books that you're reading at the moment that you might want to recommend? Thank you very much. I do appreciate that. Well, I do read Henry Kissinger's new book right now about the political characters, so it's obviously uh, quite something. And there is a new book of uh, von Dochnani, as a former German uh, minister, about the national interest in the 21st century. It's also about geopolitics. It's as high level, I think, and high quality as uh, Kissinger's book. I would also recommend it uh, to all the readers. And actually what I'm doing right now, it's I'm re-reading Hungarian historical books, how Hungarian foreign policy was looking like in, in, in the Middle East period of times in the 19th century and 20th century. Unfortunately, these books are not available in English, but my recommendation would be to read more about history and then probably we will have more chance to, to understand our future. Great. Well, if you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please do let other people know about it by writing about it on uh, your social media page or ours and hopefully by subscribing to the podcast on whatever platform you've used to download it from. And while you're there, please do give us a good rating and a positive review because that will help bring other people to the podcast. We will put links up to all the publications we mentioned on our website at ecfr.eu. But for now, from Balash Orban and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher for this podcast is Anand Sundar and the editor of this episode is Malina. Malina.